Tuesday, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Today, we are going to continue our 2021 WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it has shaped and still guides our lives and our nation. This time, we are going to be digging into the Constitution as it relates to gun ownership. And I've got two experts ready to join me. As we've been examining how different pieces of the U.S. Constitution relate and fit into our modern understanding of equality, today I want to dissect how the issue of gun rights fits into that theme of equality or inequality. Now, if we look at the text of the Second Amendment, the words have no respect to things like race or sex. They are bare words laid out supposedly to protect the rights of all of us. And yet those rights that are contained in the Second Amendment have not been distributed or respected equally throughout our history. Now, that's largely because of the way the American citizenry was defined when those words were written. It left a lot of people out of the idea of who was an American. So now, centuries later, I'm wondering, how has that notion changed of who gets to enjoy the rights secured by the Second Amendment and the Constitution? And in what ways are some of us still left out? Really, the question is whether a country whose origins are so steeped in inequality can ever really embrace equality. We've been talking about that all summer with regard to different provisions of the U.S. Constitution, and we want to talk about it now with regard to the Second Amendment. This is especially relevant as the epidemic of mass shootings and gun violence in cities like our own here in Detroit, seem to only be getting worse with each passing year. So here to talk with us about all of this and much more are two people who know the subject inside and out. Randy Barnett is the Patrick Hotung Professor of Constitutional Law at the Georgetown University Law Center and Director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He's also the co-author of a forthcoming book, which is titled The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit. That is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Randy Barnett, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks for having me. Yes. Also with us is Carol Anderson. She is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University and the author of a newly released book, The Second, Race and Guns, in a Fatally Unequal America, which came out in June. And soon after that book's release, we had Carol with us here on the program to talk about it. Carol, welcome back to Detroit uh, Today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I'm going to say up front that uh, Randy and Carol have really different ideas about, uh, about the Second Amendment, about its history, about the way it has affected our lives in America. And I think that's actually a really great, uh, there's a really great context in which to have uh, this conversation. Um, so I want to start with the inequality piece of this. And I want to ask both of you if you think 
that the people of color in this country have a realistic expectation that they are free to carry guns and protect themselves the same way that white Americans can expect. And I would like both of you to go back to the origins of the Second Amendment uh, to help answer that question. Randy, I'll start with you. Well, it is uh, unconstitutional to discriminate um, against African-Americans when it comes to possessing um, firearms today. Um, And that has actually been true for a very long time. Um, It's I think we need to start every discussion of the right to keep and bear arms um, uh, with understanding that if you're talking about a state law and you're not talking about a federal law, then the Second Amendment is not the relevant portion of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. The relevant portion of the Constitution is the 14th Amendment, um, and, the, and it's the provision of the 14th Amendment that says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Among those privileges or immunities was the right to keep and bear arms, which was expressly protected by the Freedmen's Bureau Act after... Uh, the Civil War. Um, and the 14th Amendment in particular and the Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, were adopted in order to protect the rights of African Americans to own firearms, particularly in the South, uh, where they were being disarmed by um, white supremacist governments and by white dominated militias. Um, so the whole militia issue that surrounds the Second Amendment, it really doesn't, it really goes the other way. Um, with respect to the 14th Amendment and the rights of African-Americans. Carol, I know that, uh, again, you've written this book about the inequality that shrouds uh, the Second Amendment and its enforcement over over time. But but I I would love to have you talk about whether what Randy's saying, which is that, look, it's unconstitutional to discriminate on the basis of race with regard to the Second Amendment or really any of the other amendments in the Constitution, whether that has had the practical effect in people's lives in this country uh, that those words might suggest? Uh, No, it has not. And when I look at the Second Amendment, what I really focus in on is how the fear of black people drove that amendment, the fear of the enslaved uprising, the fear that free blacks uh, would spark those uprisings, and how you had in the uh, Virginia Constitutional Ratification Convention, uh, Patrick Henry and George Mason arguing that the control of the militia that James Madison had put into the Constitution would leave slaveholders defenseless because you could not trust the federal government to to organize the militia and send the militia down if there was a massive slave revolt because they had those people like from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania in the federal government who, as, as Patrick Henry said, the North detest slavery. And so they demanded that there be a control, a bill of rights that would control the federal government and that would provide control of the militia, ensure the control of the militia in states' hands in order to quell slave revolts. So sitting there in the middle of the bill of rights is that you've got the right to control black people. You've got the right to to blow apart black people's basic civil rights. So, uh, 
Randy, when when you were talking about uh, the ways in which the Fourteenth Amendment changed uh, the protections that exist in this country, I mean, uh, there are there are a lot of people. I think uh, it may be one of the most uh, sort of common understandings about the way in which this nation changed after the Civil War to say that the Fourteenth Amendment and the Thirteenth and Fifteenth, of course. Uh, expanded uh, the liberties, the protections uh, to, to black people. But as Professor Anderson points out, um, the origins of the Second Amendment before that 14th Amendment um, was passed uh, have, have connection to uh, white supremacy and uh, discrimination against uh, African Americans. I'd love for you to talk about why that doesn't matter, I guess, uh, at, at this point, and I guess how you feel that the 14th Amendment is just uh, effectively wiped out, I guess, uh, the, the, the discrimination that, uh, that again, shrouded uh, the nation's founding. Well, speaking of the Second Amendment in particular, uh, Carol is right, of course, that in southern states that had slavery, um, the militia was uh, w- one of the institutions that was used to um, uphold it um, against the potential of slave revolts um, and rebellions. That's obviously true. But the Second Amendment um, is only secondarily about the militia. The Second Amendment um, is a protection of an individual right to keep and bear arms um, as a means of securing the militia. But it doesn't secure the militia itself. Other provisions of the Constitution govern the militia. Um, this protects an individual right. And, uh, of course, enslaved people uh, were not entitled to this right as they were not entitled to any other right, um, which is what made slavery so objectionable and contrary to the Declaration of Independence. Um, but free blacks were under no such um, constraints in the northern states. And there were free blacks in the northern states, including those that fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, that discrimination, those black codes, only came into effect in this country after the founding, um, uh, with the rise of two corresponding movements. One was the right, uh, the the the, uh, the rise of anti uh, of abolitionist movements, and the other was the rise of uh, pro-slavery ideology, uh, which really hadn't didn't exist at the founding yet. Um, it developed immediately after the founding, um, uh, in the wake of the founding, and in the wake of the rise of abolitionism. Um, so um, legal discrimination against free blacks at the founding um, uh, in the North, or at least in states that did not have um, slavery, uh, which of course grew to be half the states by the time the Constitution was adopted and the, and the Second Amendment adopted two years later, um, was itself um, uh, uh, not constitutional at the time, but it became a matter of uh, constitutional law, a matter of state law um, after that. So, uh, Randy, I, w- one of the things I think is important to, to address here is the, I guess, the gap between aspirational America, mm-hmm. I suppose, and reality America or practical America. I mean, it, it is true that, that uh, there was so much work done to perfect that original constitution and the, the ways in which it left so many people out of uh, the protections uh, that, it was, that it was extending to uh, Americans. Uh, and no question, I mean, we fought a war to end slavery. We fought 
uh, war to to get to this kind of second founding uh, with the with the Civil War amendments, which fundamentally changed the face of of the Constitution. But it's a hundred years after that before uh, many of the rights that African Americans were supposed to be getting after the war are even uh, recognized by the federal government or enforced uh, by Congress. Uh, do you feel like that has happened with the Second Amendment? In other words, uh, once the Fourteenth Amendment is is passed, uh, does it extend in your mind uh, the 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 adequate protections? I guess that needed to be extended to African Americans who wanted to bear arms. It didn't. Um, it did for a short while um, uh, until Reconstruction was abandoned. Um, and then we had 100 years of white supremacy, um, uh, which was abetted by a Supreme Court, which gutted the 14th Amendment, including the Privileges or Immunities Clause I quoted at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States was read out of the Constitution in 1873 by the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. And to this day, the Supreme Court does not recognize um, that as a viable clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, even when it came to extending the right to keep and bear arms to, uh, to citizens of a state against their own states, um, only one justice was prepared to use the Privileges or Immunities Clause to do so, and that was Justice Thomas. Um, with respect to the aspiration of the Second Amendment uh, and, the four- and the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, although in the case of District of Columbia, it is really the Second Amendment that applies, um, in the District of Columbia, uh, where I'm a citizen, um, uh, there are no gun stores in the District of Columbia. There are no target ranges. There's not. There's no uh, uh, target ranges, uh, gun ranges in the District of Columbia. When you apply for your concealed carry permit, the one I have, you actually have to take instruction in Virginia um, because there are no instructors in the District of Columbia. Now, why is that? Um, this is not uh, due to white supremacy in the District of Columbia, the government of which is dominated. Uh, by African-Americans. It's due to an anti-gun ideology uh, that developed in the 1960s and continued into the 1970s, uh, which has dominated um, uh, left-of-center politics, uh, including that of the government of the District of Columbia. And it was only uh, by the case of D.C. versus Heller, uh, a Supreme Court case in 2010 um, or 2008, uh, that, the, uh, that the right to keep and bear arms was protected in the District of Columbia, and many, many African-Americans uh, then went to take advantage of that with respect to ownership of firearms in the homes. Mm. With respect to concealed carry permits, uh, this was done by another uh, Court of Appeals decision, uh, which protected that right. And again, when I go, when I go to the Metropolitan Police Dis- uh, Department in order to gain my carry permit, um, I'm surrounded by African-Americans who are attempting to exercise their fundamental right to keep and bear arms by applying for concealed carry permits, only allowed to them um, against their local government because of a federal uh, court of appeals decision. Hmm. Uh, Carol, that tension between the historic discrimination against African-Americans with regard to gun rights and this sort of modern iteration of the debate about gun ownership and gun safety and the violence that uh, those of us who live in in urban parts of America put up with is a really is a really interesting, uh, I guess, progression. Uh, but I wonder if you can talk about how your research 
sort of relates to that, uh, this, this idea that African-Americans who might want to exercise their Second Amendment rights are often thwarted from doing so because they live in cities where gun violence uh, has convinced uh, the body politic that, uh, that gun restrictions are the way to keep everyone safe. And it, what, what we're looking at is a conundrum here. And so I'm going to go back to the 1960s. Um, and there you had the massive police violence just raining down on the black community in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. And you had the rise of the Black Panthers because the state would provide no accountability for that violence, the, the killings, the beatings. Um, and so you had the rise of the Black Panthers who said, we will police the police. And they knew what the state law was in terms of open carry. And they knew that they had their second amendment rights. And so they began to police the police by open carrying near where the police were making their arrest. The police, the Oakland police hated being policed. And they ran to uh, Don Mulford, who was a conservative member of the California General Assembly, and said, look, we need some help because the Panthers are a danger to us. And so Mulford, with the help of the NRA, began drafting legislation, um, the Mulford Act, that ended open carry. It was a way to make illegal what the Panthers were doing, um, because every time the police would pull them over, the Panthers knew the law. They knew the rules and they could not they could not arrest them for breaking the law because they weren't. They were carrying the kinds of weapons they were allowed to carry. They were carrying them in the way that they were allowed to carry them. And the, res the response was, we need to make them illegal. Mm -hmm. And the and Ronald Reagan eagerly, he's, he said, I, I am awaiting this piece of legislation. I will sign it the moment it gets on my desk. And here we have the Mulford Act. Um, so in this rise, it's not a right left a right wing or a left wing thing. It is a thing about black people carrying guns that becomes so frightening. It is what allows for stand your ground, that law of self-defense that allows that um, when whites kill black people under stand your ground, they are 10 times more likely to walk under justifiable homicide than when blacks kill whites under stand your ground. 10 times more likely. When whites kill blacks, they are 281% more likely to walk under justifiable homicide than when whites kill whites. And it's also in looking at how these laws are are operationalized. So in open carry, uh, which Ohio has, you have Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old child, playing alone in the park with uh, a toy gun. Now, granted, it didn't have the orange tip on it that said, hey, I'm a toy, but he was alone in the park. And open carry law says, as long as you're not threatening anyone, you can open carry in Ohio. The police rolled up and within two seconds, they gunned that child down because he was a danger. He was a threat. So, but you juxtapose that to Kyle Rittenhouse, who 
illegally had an illegally obtained AR-15 cross state lines to go to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there was a protest against the police shooting of a black man, Jacob Blake, seven times in the back. And the police welcomed Kyle Rittenhouse. Oh, we really appreciate you guys being here. Um, We, you know, it's hot out here. You want some water? And then Rittenhouse goes and he guns down three men, killing two, seriously injuring one. He walks back towards the police with his hands up as if to surrender, and the police don't even recognize him as a threat. Mm. So you juxtapose Tamir Rice, threat in an open carry state with Kyle Rittenhouse, who guns down three people, not a threat. It is the anti-blackness that creates the, the, the disparities in the ways that the laws are operationalized and the ways that inequality continues to embed itself in American society. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Carol Anderson and Randy Barnett. The first thing we'll do when we get back is get Randy Barnett to respond to those things that Carol Anderson was just talking about, about the ways in which inequality still plays out in America with regard to gun rights. We will also get to you, the listeners. Give us a call. Let us think. Let us know what you think the role of the Second Amendment is in American society right now. Is it a force for good, for bad, or a bit of both? Also, give us a sense of whether you think we ought to be rethinking the ways in which we protect the right to bear arms in America. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones, as always. 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're continuing our WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways that it shapes and influences questions of equality and inequality uh, today. Uh, we've got two really wonderful experts with us to talk about the Second Amendment and the ways in which equality and inequality play out with regard to the right to bear arms. Randy Barnett uh, is a law professor at the Georgetown University Law Center and director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He's also co-author of a forthcoming book called The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit. We've also got Carol Anderson with us. She is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of the newly released book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, which came out in June. We want to hear from you during this conversation uh, as well, what you think about modern gun rights in America, what do you think about modern gun issues in America, and the ways in which they relate to the Constitution or notions of equality and inequality. Whose rights are protected and why? Who does not have the same rights uh, as everyone else? And how do things like the mass shootings and the prevalent gun violence uh, that we see in so many parts of America fit into our understanding of 
the Second Amendment. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. We also are collecting uh, comments from you online about the ways in which you would change the U.S. Constitution. Uh, in order to do that, all you've got to do is go to wdet.org constitution and put your comments there. A couple of the ones that we've gotten about the Second Amendment uh, are really interesting. Chris Mackey says, add limits on gun ownership, at least clarify that the intent is for a well-regulated militia. Uh, Chris Hill says, take out the militia part of the Second make the second more timeline relevant. Uh, and another comment says, add right to health, education, bodily autonomy, delete the Second Amendment or properly interpret it. Uh, before we get to more listener comments, uh, Randy Barnett, I want to have you respond to the th things that Carol Anderson was talking about just before we broke, about the ways in which uh, gun rights are still interpreted unevenly in America, and that that presents a conundrum to African-Americans about uh, the Second Amendment and its value. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, to, on, a, on a granular level, we disagree about the facts of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was being pursued by three white individuals, um, uh, one of whom was armed with an illegal uh, uh, handgun, uh, and who had been knocked to the ground, and the person with the handgun was poised to fire that handgun at him when he fired his weapon in self-defense. Um, so this was actually white-on-white -white violence, um, and doesn't really fit the template um, uh, uh, of white-on-black of or uh, police violence uh, that we have been uh, confronting. But I think um, uh, I, I, I think year. I think her comparison was between Kyle Rittenhouse's uh, ease. Uh, to, to, to be able to walk around with a very large uh, semi-automatic weapon and be undisturbed by the police. And Tamir Rice in Cleveland, who had a toy gun and was not just confronted by police, but, but shot dead by them without any sort of inquiry. I think that was the... The main I inequality. She I was understand that, yes. but I do think yes. it's useful to get the rest of the facts of the Rittenhouse case um, out on the table when you're discussing it. Mm. Okay. Um, the, I, it with respect to the, um, the protection of African Americans' right to keep and bear arms, um, these rights are the least well protected um, in municipalities uh, that have long been governed by progressive Democrat uh, establishment rulers. Hmm. Um, they're the ones that restrict the right to keep and bear arms. In the District of Columbia, to return to the district that I know, um, uh, in order to obtain a concealed carry permit, in order to legally carry outside the home, you have to undergo 16 hours of training that is not available in the District of Columbia. I had to take off two days of work um, in order to do to, to obtain my permit. This is not a burden that can be, uh, uh, but I should say in the, in the classroom that I was in, it was almost overwhelmingly minority uh, people there, either Hispanic um, uh, or people of color, mm. other people of color that were in that room. And actually the instructor was African-American in the one in the class that I took. Um, um, uh, but the point is, is that the burden that is being placed on people in the District of Columbia is being placed on them by a progressive Democratic government 
that makes them criminals if they carry a gun and they haven't gone through the permitting process, which many of them could not be able to, would not be able to do. Right. And it would be, and it's deliberately being made costly and difficult to do in order to discourage them from legally um, carrying a gun, which means they're carrying a gun illegally when they carry a gun to protect themselves from the violence in their communities. Um, they themselves have turned themselves into been turned into criminals um, by their local governments um, uh, uh, in order to uh, supposedly protect them against gun violence, which they are trying very hard to protect themselves against. Uh, Carol, you and I have talked about the uh, again the tension between uh, the the historic discrimination against African Americans. Uh, by uh, white authorities who are afraid of uh, what African Americans would do if they if they had guns, uh, and the uh, the enthusiasm for gun ownership uh, that exists among uh, African Americans in cities like Detroit or Washington D.C., as Randy is uh, pointing out, uh, and the way it's thwarted today by uh, by people who who are also African-American and and who aren't afraid necessarily of, uh, you know, a revolt. They are they are trying to to deal with violence uh, that, you know, the, whose consequences, of course, um, meet out much more severely and disproportionately among African-Americans and other people of color. Yes, and, and, and this is where we have to have a real conversation about what real safety and real security looks like. Does adding to the number of guns in our community bring about safety and security? Does it really? Um, what we have to do is begin to dismantle the system of anti-Blackness that creates Black people as a threat, as the default threat in American society. Um, when we have that default threat there, it, is, it makes it very difficult for us to move through policy-wise what real safety and security looks like. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. I want to read a Twitter comment from Glenn, who says, so true, D.C. is at the mercy of Congress for whether its citizens follow the laws in either state, Virginia or Maryland, or what Congress lets the D.C. government have control of. It's a colonial city that should have its citizens decide their own determination. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Uh, Sam in Mount Clemens. Sam, welcome to the show. Stephen, nice to talk to you again. Yes, thanks for calling. Um, I'll try to make this quick. Um, I'm a gun owner. Um, it's solely for uh, sport and protection. Um, but the one thing I wanted to touch on, I have a CPL, so I have the right to carry that. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing about open carry is I think it's a sham that should go away because if you're a criminal or somebody who's going to cause harm, some, who's the first person you're going to take out? The person that's brandishing a gun. Um, I never open carry. And the other part of that is when you get in your car, that's considered concealed. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. how do you get from point A to point B? You go to Walmart and open your trunk and pull a gun out? I mean, that's setting up for failure right there um when i had when i got my cpl like uh everyone got said i, I there was multiple 
people of color in the room. There's no problem. Now counties are trying to, like in Macomb, I had to go in front of, like, it was like a prosecutor, a judge, mm-hmm. and somebody else. One person says no. They say yes. They already know if you're going to get it or not. So now it's a mail-in thing. And I don't remember ever having a circle race or anything. But um, And as far as, like, school shootings go and crazy crap like that, I think that's more on the the mental health thing. Like, I wouldn't. I can dream of doing something stupid like that. You know what I mean? And I, I think um, we really need to dig into mental health. Sure. Um, but like I said, I am a. My guns are locked up in a safe. I have an eight-year-old daughter. Mm. She can't get to them. There's nine million combinations before she can find it, <laughs> which she wouldn't even be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do agree with both both of your guests, mm. and I'd like to hear their opinion on what I have to say. Yeah. Sam, I really appreciate the call and uh, the wide-ranging thoughts there about uh, gun ownership and uh, the Second Amendment. I'll give our guests a chance to respond. Uh, Carol, I'll start with you. Um, so the the thing about open carry is I look at like states like Ohio where we had uh, John Crawford who was in Walmart uh, and he picked up a, a BB gun off of the shelf in the toy department and he's walking around with it in the store while he's on the phone and a couple calls into the police saying there's a man here brandishing a rifle pointing it at people and the cops come in thinking that they're going to see an act they're in an active shooter situation and they gun um, John Crawford down. They said, drop your weapon. And he had his back to them. And and so he didn't drop because he didn't think he had a weapon. And the next thing you know, he shot down. Uh, the, the, the reality is, is that there is a heightened vulnerability for black people who are carrying weapons, just as there is a vulnerability, a precarity of life for black people simply because of the threat. It is an Amy Cooper calling into the NYPD that there is a black man here in the park and he's threatening me. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there's a reason why she identified him as an African-American man. Um, She just didn't say there's a man in the park threatening me. That is that that default threat. And that's what we have to deal with here. Hmm. Uh, Randy? Well, the first thing I want to correct is uh, that tweet that you read. Uh, It is true that the D.C. uh, government, uh, local government, only has its powers because of Congress has given them home rule powers. Hmm. But all the laws that I'm talking about um, are enacted not by Congress. Congress has not run the District of Columbia for decades. Um, all they could they could they could get the power back if they wanted to. They could take the power back, but they haven't. All the laws I'm talking about are being uh, administered or being implemented uh, and enacted by a 100 percent longstanding Democratic progressive Democratic government dominated nowadays uh, by African-Americans. It's an ideology about guns uh, that is the issue here. Um, and uh, I, I would disagree with what te- Car- or I think I disagree with what Carol was alluding to earlier when she said, is more guns the solution to the gun violence problem? Um, it's not clear that having more guns in the hands of, of a law abiding African-Americans would do anything but diminish the problem of gun violence uh, in this country. Uh, people who are willing to get possess guns illegally can do so freely because it's illegal. I mean, they, they gun, it's only law-abiding citizens who are prevented from obtaining firearms. Mm. 
Um, and let me also, with respect to concealed carry versus open carry, uh, just as our culture has changed radically with respect to race since the founding, our culture has also changed with respect to concealed versus open carry. Mm. The first gun laws we had in this country, um, which were in the 19th century, not in the 18th century, uh, some of the first ones were bans on concealed carry because it was thought that concealed carry, only people who are up to no good would carry concealed. People who were law-abiding citizens would carry open. That culture obviously has changed to the point you have incidents uh, where, that Carol is talking about where people are terrified uh, at the sight of a gun, the sight of a firearm, and call the police when they see people who are lawfully in possession of firearms, real firearms, not just toy firearms. Um, uh, so the culture is such that now um, it really would be imprudent to carry open because of the reaction it would be engendered by people who have been indoctrinated against guns so seriously. Mm. Mm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the Second Amendment, equality, inequality, and the U.S. Constitution. We also continue to hear from you on the phones. Bernadette and Old Redford, Jake and Detroit, you're up next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on here on the phones. Again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guests are Randy Barnett, a professor of constitutional law at Georgetown University, and Carol Anderson, a professor of African-American studies at Emory University. We're talking as part of our WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it shapes and influences equality and inequality in our country. We're talking about the Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear arms uh, and the way it has been protected uh, both evenly and unevenly in our history and uh, in the present. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation about what you think about the Second Amendment, the way it's been interpreted, the way it is interpreted now, uh, the ways in which uh, it influences uh, equality or inequality uh, as it relates to gun ownership uh, in our country, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you in. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, what's on your mind? Good morning. So, Hi. Stephen, I am not a gun owner, and I just want to say that I think the whole gun issue in America is its a uniquely insane American discussion. I don't think people need guns. Um, it's one thing to be a hunter and a sportsman and have a gun to do that, like what they do in Australia and England and other places. But the whole populace doesn't need to be armed. We have nothing but evidence that people can't handle it. We have people shooting people from cars because they are in a road rage sort of mentality. We have people with mental illness 
um, who have committed some crimes, and by that I mean like the school shootings, those people clearly aren't in their right minds, and they're going in shoes, schools killing children. I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of gun incidents a year that result in death. There's hundreds of thousands of gun incidents every year that result in harm. And how as a nation we can continue to think that people should be armed is just beside me. I think it's insanity. Mm. I think it's clearly insanity. Mm. Terry, uh, I appreciate the call and, of course, the, the perspective there. Uh, Randy Barnett, I think we, we haven't had a chance to talk about what you might believe are reasonable limits on this right to bear arms, uh, as Terry points out. Uh, gun ownership, both legal and illegal, uh, and the connection between the two, which is something we don't often talk about, the idea that illegal gun possession often starts uh, through a legal gun purchase. Uh, There's this sort of pipeline uh, of legally bought guns that end up in inappropriate hands. Uh, I I know you to be a a, a staunch Second Amendment advocate, but I wonder if you even believe that uh, there ought to be reasonable limits to keep guns out of the hands uh, of of some people. Well, uh, such limits are clearly constitutional. Um, Whatever you may think of them as policy, they are clearly constitutional. All liberty... Uh, that's protected by the Constitution may reasonably be regulated to protect the rights of others. That includes the freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It it includes other liberties that are not in the Constitution, like the liberty to enter into contracts. Um, There are also police to protect for fraud and duress and other abuses. So that is uh, clearly a constitutional uh, thing. Um, And when I look at concealed carry laws, let's say, um, um, the, uh, there is something very valuable about the training that one receives, uh, one, one is required to receive before one can obtain a concealed carry permit in the District of Columbia. Um, and that, for example, instructs you on the law of armed self-defense. It, expre- it instructs you on what your civil liability is if your gun is ever misused or even if it's properly used but you get sued. Uh, it actually uh, chastens you about being able to carry concealed uh, or carry a weapon because you know what your liabilities are. I think that's actually very valuable. I think what that could be covered in two hours. What's not, what I think makes that regulation abusive and separates a reasonable regulation from an unreasonable regulation is the fact that they require 16 hours of training over two days, uh, which makes, which raises the cost to people who cannot afford to take that kind of time. And also, the course is actually very expensive. It's, it's several hundred dollars mm. in addition to the permit fees you have to pay uh, in the District of Columbia to own a gun. And so there is a great discrimination that results um, from these unreasonable regulations. But to get to your question, back to your question, at the core um, is a reasonable component, which is to say before you can carry in public, you need to know what the law is that governs carrying in public so that you can carry responsibly. That seems that strikes me as uh, a reasonable regulation and clearly a constitutional one. Mm. Mm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Jake in Detroit. Jake, what's on your Good mind? Good morning. Thank hey. you for the opportunity once again to participate. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, um, I've called before. Uh, I'm a. Uh, I've worked in the prison system in Michigan. I've worked in law enforcement. And I fundamentally believe that it's going to be very, very difficult to have an honest discussion about uh, gun rights and gun laws 
Um, when I so frequently hear situations where people fail to properly and responsibly contextualize what is occurring in these incidents that are brought up and described as an impetus for gun control laws. I mean, we, we had two examples that were brought up several times today um, in one situation where police officers show up on the scene, somebody has what they think is a firearm in their hand and turns uh, and with that firearm lifted and leveled and ends up getting shot dead. Um, and in, a, in another situation where we have a person who is in a legal open carry situation with a shouldered weapon, um, not in their hands, not pointed at anybody. These are two, from a standpoint of law enforcement, two radically different situations. Now, I, 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 my intent is not to have a debate on what was correctly done or incorrectly done in either of these situations, but when they're cited and described in, a, in what is clearly exhaustive, investigation showed that that the description was is being glossed over and not accurately portrayed if i show up on the scene as a law enforcement official and somebody has a gun in their hand there is no such thing as a legal carry that person is putting others lives and my life in danger and they're at risk of getting shot dead regardless of age or whether it's a toy gun we have no way of knowing that. Mm. So, 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 Jake, uh, you are a former law enforcement officer. You've seen the video of what happened to Tamir Rice. Would you have handled that in the same way, I guess, is the question. It's, it's very difficult to state that, to, to answer your question without seeing. All I've seen are small snippets of what occurred. Mm-hmm. I didn't see everything that occurred from a vantage point of that law enforcement official and mm. how I could. And that's why a law, why a, a jury gets to see that and mm-hmm. they get to hear that. Mm-hmm. And then when a jury gets to see and hear those details in the multitude of cases where these type of things happen, and then they acquit the officer, the community goes wild because all they're getting is the information that the media reports not the information that the jury was at, had access. Got to see in the court, uh, Jake. I, I I really appreciate the call and uh, and your perspective, of course, as a former law enforcement official. I do want Carol Anderson to to, to respond, though, uh, given that this is a big part of uh, her research in terms of why police respond the way they do in certain situations. Right. And so with the John Crawford case, um, it was clear that he did not turn around um, with the gun. He was still on the phone and the police officer said, drop your weapon. And and John Crawford did not respond. And it was in that moment where the officer said, I feared for my life. I feared for my partner's life. And I feared for the lives of all of the customers in Walmart. They sat, the officers there sounded just the way that Jake sounded. And the thing is, is that when you go back and you look at the tape, the videotape in Walmart, you see that um, John Crawford wasn't doing any of the things that the caller said that Crawford was doing. He wasn't waving the gun around. He wasn't 
uh, aiming it at somebody. He wasn't pointing it at children. He wasn't doing any of those things. He was just with a toy gun in Walmart, a, a gun that Walmart sells. So it is that kind of scenario that creates this this very clear sense of vulnerability. And we have to deal with that vulnerability, that precarity, that sense of black as threat, black as danger. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, uh, Jake, I really do appreciate the call uh, and and your comments and especially your perspective as, uh, as a former law enforcement official. Uh, Can I just add something? Yeah, go ahead, Randy. Because I I want to agree with the last thing she said about how we need to address that as a problem. But we don't address that as a problem by preventing African-Americans from legally owning weapons um, uh, the way they can in other parts of the country, particularly in major cities where police protection is not what it should be. And we've seen that particularly in the last year or two. Hmm. So um, you can agree with her about the problem and still disagree about whether gun laws are the appropriate response to that problem. Hmm. Uh, Michael on Twitter has uh, a question that I think fits into this this particular part of the discussion. He says, regulated implies we should be regulating. So why not have a registry of firearms and who owns them? It seems consistent with the intent. I know that's something that many gun advocates oppose randy barnett what do you what do you think of that idea right the reason they oppose that is because they understand that this is being proposed by people like your earlier caller who believe there should be no guns and it's insanity to own guns and would use such a registry when they are in power to uh, locate the guns and confiscate them if there was trust in this country if there was not an anti-gun ideology in this country people might be more accepting of a registry but because there isn't and because we know the callers like your caller are out there uh, and they are dom- and they dominate one of our political parties. Um, uh, a registry is not trusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also a registry would only affect things after the fact, after gun crime, a gun crime has taken place. Oh, at that point, you can figure out, well, where did this gun come from um, and who did it properly belong to? This is not a way of preventing uh, crimes uh, at all anyway. So there are other gun laws that are currently in effect. Um, all of them have been upheld as constitutional. Or most all of them have been upheld as constitutional. And uh, so there's not as though we don't have gun laws in this country. Mm. That's one particular gun law that raises particular problems for people who believe in the right to keep and bear arms. Okay. Randy Barnett of uh, Georgetown University Law Center and Carol Anderson of Emory University. It was really, really wonderful to have both of you here for this conversation today. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate thank you. It. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how school districts, parents, and students are preparing for the new school year, especially as COVID-19's cases surge again across the country. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.